Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, my name is Ismet Persik, and I'm reading from my first novel, Shards. Um, this is from a chapter entitled, Some Early Sorrows. Earliest Memory Hot summer day. My grandmother brought a hatchet from the shed and hung it on the branch of a thin cherry tree in the backyard, smiling. I sat on a sheepskin rug in the shade of a rosebush, watching a hand trying to flee, flapping its white wings, one of its yellow talons tied by rope to a stake driven into the middle of the lawn. It would get a meter or so into the air and then, anchored, flap back down. For a second it would stand there, balancing on one foot, blinking, cocking its head sideways, and then it would try again. When Grandmother approached, it went crazy, flying around in a whirlpool of airborne feathers. The sound of the wings was deep and muffled like glove-handed applause. Grandmother sniggered as she stepped on the rope closer and closer to the hand, gradually reducing its fly zone. Finally, she caught it, untied the rope, and with a wide-eyed hand under her left arm, took the hatchet off the cherry branch and walked behind the shed. I got up and waddled after her, but she heard me and yelled at me not to look. I stood around the shed's corner for some time not moving, then peeked out anyway. I saw her kneel down on the bird, trying to subdue its wings, trying to get a good grip on it so she could place its head on a low stump in the clearing full of sawdust and wood chips. Her back was to me so she couldn't see me. The first twack of the hatchet missed completely. The second was weak, and it hit too close to the thick of the breast and didn't do much. The third connected with the neck, but failed to sever the head. The fourth one took the head off all right, but my grandmother lost her grip on the hand, and it took off flying for four or five meters, landing in the grass right in front of me. It took a couple of steps and stretched its wings, as if thrilled with itself that it got away. Its neck spurted blood that reddened its white plumage something awful, but that seemed not to be an issue. It fluffed its feathers, getting some specks of blood on my bare legs, then scratched the grass with its feet, leaned down, and, obeying a terrible instinct somewhere in its muscles, made as if to feed, as if to peck the ground with its beak that was meters away on a small dune of blood-sprinkled sawdust already stilled by death. Age 3 The moment Marshal Tito died, I shat myself. These incidents were not connected. It had to have been a weekday because I was at my grandparents in Gornia Tuzla. My parents mustn't have gotten off work yet. They would come to visit every afternoon after work on work days and would take me home to Tuzla on weekends and holidays because I don't remember them being there. I was sick as a dog from gorging myself on something or other and was lying in a fetal position on the L-shaped sofa. It was cold. My grandfather sat in his armchair by the window and smoked his cigarettes. He sat on his right foot with his left knee drawn to his chest and stared intently at his ancient black-and-white TV with a pensive expression mostly in his brow. I felt my stomach cramp and suddenly my drawers were filled with wetness and warmth. It took me a second to realize what had happened and when I did I immediately burst into tears. My grandma was in the adjoining kitchen behind these green curtains and when I called her my grandfather howled at me to shut up. He had never raised his voice at me before. 
I fixed my bulging eyes on the TV to see what warranted this kind of explosion. On the screen was a grey town square, somewhere, with all of its people standing frozen wherever they found themselves, dark against the asphalt, crying. The sound of wailing sirens came through the speakers. Then the weepy and grandiose voice of some TV announcer shouted things with emotion. Scared and shitty, I started to cry again, and my grandfather called my grandmother to shut me up and turn up the television because Tito had just died. She stormed in and picked me up, automatically praying for the departed soul of the communist leader in Arabic. Her hands were wet and cold from whatever she was doing in the kitchen, and they smelled of apples. She patted my chest and whispered that we had to be quiet because it was an important day, and then she turned the volume knob to an almost unbearable level and carried me through the green curtains into the kitchen. Age four. We lived on the eighth floor of an ugly gray building on Burchenska Malta. All three rooms of our apartment faced south, which meant facing the newest, biggest twin skyscrapers in Tuzla. I was in the kitchen-slash-dining room, drawing an orange bulldozer unloading a mass of yellow sand into the back of a red truck. There was a construction site in between our building and the one of the skyscrapers that I was using for inspiration. Looking out the window, I noticed a large gray coat swell with wind, disembark from the clothesline on a balcony on one of the skyscraper's highest floors, and fall straight down to the ground. It must have been a very heavy coat. It fell that fast. But then passers-by started to gather around it, dozens of them, crowding, walking urgently toward it, pointing and clasping their hands over their mouths. I told my mother about it. She came over and hugged me from behind and looked out, too, the passers-by ran and waved to the cars on the street. A white cinquecento drove up over the curb onto the sidewalk and over the sidewalk onto the grass and sped all the way to the crowd, honking its horn. Why are the people looking at the coat? I asked. Mother put the hand over my eyes and asked me if I wanted lemonade. She closed the blinds and turned on the radio. Age six. I started first grade when I was six, which, because both of my parents worked, and it was my brother's turn to stay with our grandparents, made me a latchkey kid at six. I both loved and hated this. I loved sleeping as long as possible, having the TV on all day, and reading all the books in my mother's library, the medical ones with pictures of naked people were staples. But I hated being a child and alone, being vulnerable and scared. I hated being petrified when people rang the doorbell, door-to-door -door salesmen, beggars, gypsies asking to fix your umbrellas, older kids collecting old newspapers and bottles trying to earn more money through recycling. I never opened the door, just like I was told. I hated when they would hear me inside and ring the bell two or three times, just waiting there as I trembled in fright and tried to silently put on the chain. I hated having to walk to school by myself. I hated the silence that filled the apartment when I was alone, the silence that made me leave the TV on even during the news and boring history shows and intermezzos. Those TV intermezzos were the worst. They would show a tape of a bird flying and play classical music for hours. It happened out of the blue. I was watching the little rascals in the living room and eating a butter and honey sandwich when the phone rang. We had a red rotary phone that had a little light on it that flashed when the phone was ringing. I imagined this light to be a camera through which whoever was calling could look into the apartment and see me, even though a mother told me it was for deaf people to see when the phone is ringing. I was not supposed to be watching TV that day because I had a lot of homework to finish, 
Nor was I supposed to eat in the living room, which was why I turned off the TV before I answered the phone, and why I finished chewing my last bite, too. Making a good boy face to the flashing light, I picked up the handle and said hello. There was silence at the other end, but not a dead one. It was the silence of an empty room, or a room that someone was keeping quiet in to give the appearance of an empty room. It was the kind of silence that sound people in the movie business have to mic and record because they can't have the absence of sound, because it sounds dead, unnatural, and because they need more nuanced silences to make their movies sound alive. The silence I was hearing on the other end of that line was definitely an alive silence. I repeated my hello at a higher pitch as my heart climbed into my throat. This time I heard something, a noise, as though someone were sniffling or trying to subdue a whimper. I swallowed. I thought, hopefully, that it was just a bad connection, that the whimperer simply couldn't hear my voice. And just as I was about to go into a third, louder hello, a woman's voice said something that I will never forget. She said, Little boy, Dr. Stefan Tadic is your daddy. Do you hear? Your daddy is not your daddy. Dr. Stefan Tadic is your daddy. I hung up hard. It hurt my knuckles. I heard my heart in the silence of the apartment. I didn't understand what she meant, but I knew it was bad what she said, really bad. The phone rang again, and I covered the light with my hand. It rang again, and again, 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 again. Shaking, actually hearing my teeth chatter, I waited it out, and when it was over, I dialed my mom at work. The operator told me to hold. I held. My finger was bleeding a little. I held until my mom answered, and then I couldn't hold it in anymore. Age 7 I was lying in my bed with my right arm stretched uncomfortably over the cold plastic of the night table to hold my baby brother's hand as we listened. She was screaming at him again. She was breaking things. He was saying, Don't do it. Why would you want to do that? She was saying, Enough, enough, enough. I can't take lies anymore. There was noise, the banging and sliding of kitchen drawers, the jingling of utensils, the clanging of cutlery. There were hurried footsteps down the hall, and then the door to our room opened and father barged in. My brother cried first. He cried, What are you doing? I followed closely. I cried, Don't fight, please. We were up on our feet already, and father ushered us out. He was saying, I don't know what's wrong with her, and maybe you can help her. We came into the hallway awkwardly in our pajamas. The linoleum by the front door was cold on my bare feet. The light on the electricity meter on the wall was glowing red. It meant the nightly cheap rate had already commenced. Mother came out of the kitchen with a knife, and when she saw us, she hid it behind her back. We cried. We wailed. Father was behind us, with the front door behind him. Let me go, she was saying to him. Calm down, Henrietta, he was saying to her. Be reasonable. Step away or I'll... She started and stopped herself. She thought about it. Her eyes darted around. Then she finished. I'll do something ugly. I remember thinking that it was a weird thing to say. In English, you can get away with it, but in Bosnian, it sounds weird. It sounds awkward. Nobody says a thing like that. It sounds cheesy. She was not saying what she wanted to say. I remember thinking, what does she mean? Why, he was asking. We have an apartment. 
We have good jobs. We have two children. What's so bad? You are, she said. I am. This is a fiasco. She took a step back into the kitchen and looked at Mehmed and me. Never forget this, she said. We're all living a lie. Age 12 In elementary school, I was into math. I liked that there was only one solution per problem, that nothing was vague, and that you didn't have to interpret what the author meant by this or that. I had it all figured out for the first four years. It was later, as the math got more abstract and elusive, and you had to remember formulas and draw coordinate systems and such, that I developed animosity towards the subject. Suddenly, there was more than one solution to a single problem, and I started to lose my footing in reality as I knew it. I remember being obsessed with the notion that a straight line can go on forever and never touch another straight line that was parallel to it, that, seen from the side, a straight line is just a dot, which I thought could not be proven, since the line would go right through your eye and brain, rendering you blind and dead. Tragically, I said this out loud in class, and my comrade teacher thought I was trying to be funny and made me stand in a corner facing the wall for hours. My peers snickered at the size of my ass, and I visualized myself turning into a dust moat and wafting out through the crack under the door. But mostly my change of heart came when she walked into my life, my comrade teacher Radmila. She was a plump brunette in her forties with pleasant features and nicely manicured nails, but had some kind of a growth on her cheek that allowed her to smile only with one side of her mouth, making the effort seem cold and half-hearted. She was capable of such astonishing mercilessness that I pissed myself twenty minutes into a class because she wouldn't let me out because that's why we have breaks in between classes. I sat there in lukewarm dampness inside an acrid cloud thinking of comic book heroes. I stopped doing my homework. I convinced myself I couldn't get it. I faked being sick to cut class. I prayed not to be called on. I copied other students' work. By the third trimester, I had accumulated a plethora of bad grades, got caught cheating on an exam, little pieces of paper with formulas glued to the underside of my fat ruler, and was sent to the principal's office. The principal, whom we called Rooster because he had a piece of loose, leathery skin connecting the tip of his chin to the center of his collarbone, ripped me a new one and then gave me a second chance. If I did well on my final exam, he was going to let my conduct unbecoming a student slide. There was no way I could have prepared a school year's worth of math in two and a half weeks. I told myself that I was trying. In reality, most of my energy was directed at conjuring up an elaborate scheme that would excuse me from taking the final. I fantasized about being hit by a car and lingering between life and death. I prayed for a communicable disease. It just so happened that my mother had to go with her nurses club to a symposium on how to battle alcoholism somewhere in Macedonia right about the time I was to take my final exam. Knowing this ahead of time and realizing that I was going to be alone with my pushover of a father, I hatched my master plan. See, a couple of years back my cousin Adi had an inflamed appendix that needed to be taken out. Due to the operation and some complications, he didn't have to take any final exams and still passed into the next year. My plan was to find out from him all the symptoms of an appendix attack and act them out for my father in hopes it would get me under the surgical knife. In the dictionary, it said that the appendix is a slender, closed tube attached to the large intestine near the point at which it joins the small intestine. I had no problem sacrificing that. 
Not only did my father buy into my performance, but so did the doctors in the ER. I went out of my way not to blurt out the list of symptoms like an amateur. I just picked a few good ones and mentioned them offhandedly. There was no empty doubling over or cries of pain. I kept my cool. It worked. By the time they got me into those surgery slip-ons and led me down the tile floors of pacifying mint, green, and bleach, I did get cold feet, but it was too late. The anesthesiologist started telling me a joke and zonked me out just before the punchline. I dreamt that my inflatable raft got ruptured on some craggy rocks just under the surface and that I was about to sink into the depths where some dark shapes were sliding around. I came to in a corridor with terrible pain and a confusion of squeaky wheels and people talking in bleach and iodine. I was wheeled into a room, moved to a bed, and the boy next to me had some complications, so they left him open with a tube dripping yellow pus into a plastic container. He looked miserable. The girl on the other side of my bed was bald. She had lice, amongst other things. I remember the ravenous sounds my stomach made when they brought in food for everyone but me and the pus boy. I remember his haircut, a little like Hitler's, and the way the liquid glucose dripped down the tube and into my vein for lunch. My mom returned from Macedonia early and pulled some nurse's strings to come and visit me beyond the visitation hours. She seemed to have bought my performance as well. She was there when my doctor came into the room looking more like a butcher than a doctor with oily skin a sheen, an unshaven neck, and a mustache as solid as a chocolate log. He told us that I was a very lucky boy, that if I hadn't gotten to the hospital when I did, I would have died that the inflammation of the appendix was at such a late stage that it was full of pus and ready to burst. He then produced a jar of yellowish liquid with what looked like a fat piece of decomposing red licorice twisted and curled. The biggest one I've ever seen, he said. That's including the grown-ups. Let me get one thing across. I never, not for a single second during my performance, felt any pain. None. So what happened? Here are some possibilities. Perhaps the doctor found a perfectly normal appendix and realized I was lying and decided to play a little joke on me. Or perhaps I got so far into the role of a boy who's having an appendix attack that I psychosomatically caused my appendix to inflame. Or maybe God found a twisted way to tell me I needed an operation when my body refused to warn me the usual way. So what happened? A realization. There is no one solution. Everything is up for interpretation. It's all about what the author meant by this or that. My mom made me go to school after missing only six days. I took the final exam. Got a C. To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The writer's block is produced by KQED. 